sacred throng, we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. We'll crown him Lord of all. Is. Hey. 
you for worshiping this morning. Will you have a seat as we continue to worship in prayer? Let's go before God's throne together. Lord, you, uh, you brought us here. You brought us here where we need to be in your very presence. Lord, you, you called us, you invite us to be able to come before your throne, a throne described as a throne of grace. And Lord, it's only because of that grace that we can come, because of what you did for us on the cross, because of that mercy. And because of that, we're here. This indeed is our time of need. And that very mercy and grace is what we come before you seeking on behalf of ourselves as individuals, as families, as, as a church body, as a, as a world, and particularly as a nation. Lord, we need you. We're in desperate need of you. We pray this week that as our people go to the polls, that they would go with wisdom, Lord. And we pray that our, our leaders would be men and women that serve out of a hunger for righteousness, out of humility, and out of, out of wisdom, Lord. Father, I know that in this room, these friends here have got things going on that uh, you care intimately about, Lord, and they're heavy on our hearts. So, Father, we want to pause for a moment and bring these things before you. Thank you, Lord, that you hear these prayers as we pause for a moment and bring them before you silently. Thank you, Lord, as we come to you as a community of worshipers who, who love you, who love your word, who love your truth. And so, Lord, this morning we, we pray for Jonathan that uh, you would empower his words as he teaches this morning. And, Lord, we also ask that you would em empower us as we hear your word taught, that you would empower our ears and our hearts, Lord. I, I pray that where you want to encourage us this morning, that we would leave this place highly encouraged. We pray that where you want to bring conviction to us, Lord, we pray that we would embrace and act on that conviction. And Father, where you want us to apply and take steps, Lord, we pray that we would leave with the courage to take those steps. And we pray these things expectantly because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are uh, so grateful to be worshiping with you guys this morning and um, so overjoyed to be worshiping the God, the holy, holy, holy King Jesus. And um, I'm amazed by his love for us. Um, it is a true self-sacrificing love that just has no equal on earth, apart from one instance I can recall where Jesus died for the ungodly while we were still sinners. And um, that's a perfect love that casts out fear. And um, this song, as we move into it, um, join me in thinking about that truth and just 
you know, I'm preaching that to myself every day that uh, God loves us. God is sovereign. God is smarter than me. And I can let him be God. Um, and that perfect love casts out all fear. So this song is uh, Stand in Your Love. Chance when I stand in your love. 
Amen. Thank you, Cooper. Can you believe it's November? It's just what has happened to the time. Um, uh, I heard this story of uh, a man named Charlie who was a new retiree greeter at Walmart, and he just couldn't seem to show up at work on time. Every day he was 5, 10, 15 minutes late. Uh, but he was a good worker, he was really tidy, he was clean-shaven, he was sharp-minded, and he was a real credit to the company and obviously was a good demonstrator uh, of their older person-friendly policies. Uh, one day, the boss called him into his office uh, for a talk. He said, Charlie, uh, I really like you, but I have to tell you, your work ethic is great, you're really doing a bang-up job. Uh, but your showing up late is really quite bothersome. And he said, you know, yes, boss, this, I understand, and I'm working on it. And he said, well, good. You're, you're a team player, and, and that's what I want to hear. Uh, it's odd, though, you're coming in late. I, I know you're retired armed forces. What did they say if you came in late? They said, good morning, Admiral. Can I get you a coffee, sir? Well, as we continue on our series in Jude, we come to a very strange and confusing passage uh, that I think has a lot to do with our position as Christians, where we are positionally uh, in Jesus as it relates to our status. It could be argued that our understanding on this is one of the most important as believers. But first, we need to remember who Jude is and why he's writing this letter. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James, though he does not describe himself uh, as a brother of Jesus, but rather as a slave of Jesus. There's a positional statement for you. And he's writing because he's noticed that certain people are creep, have crept into the church unnoticed who pervert grace into sensuality and deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he wants the believers who are positionally in Christ to contend for the faith. Jude has given Old Testament examples of, uh, of judgment that came upon groups who defiled the flesh and rejected authority. And our verses today cover the last part of verse 8. These people blaspheme the glorious ones. And verse 9, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, lots to unpack. We'd better go to the Lord for help. Uh, Lord, we confess that we are unable to understand these things apart from you. You open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see and understand these wonders from your word. We ask, Father, that your spirit would be with us, that he would help me, that he would help all of us think together through these things, that your word would come alive to us and we would rejoice in the truths that you have given us in the identity that we now have as believers and sons and daughters of yours. 
For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this story of Michael the archangel, it's obviously not scriptural in the sense that there's no account of it in the, in the canon of scripture. It is either passed down uh, through oral tradition to where Jude is very well aware of it, as are probably his readers, and or it's part of this apocryphal writing called the Assumption of Moses. Whatever the case, Jude sees it fit to use this story as an illustration. In the story, we have the archangel Michael contending with Satan over the body of Moses after his death. Deuteronomy 34 tells us that Moses went up Mount Nebo in Moab uh, to see the promised land, but did not enter it because of his failures. And we read, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So why does Satan want the body of Moses? Well, probably because he wants the Israelites to venerate him. He knows that they will find his body and they will try to raise him from the dead and they will try to worship him. When I traveled to India a number of years ago, we went up a mountain called uh, Martoma. It's the mountain of St. Thomas. Doubting Thomas, who went to India uh, doing the work of ministry. And here on top of the mountain was a shrine to Thomas. Not to Jesus, who Thomas was preaching, but to Thomas. And in the temple was supposedly the toenail of Thomas, which was enshrined. What is wrong with us? We will worship anything. People become so transfixed with power. They, they will do anything to be near it. They will do anything to have it. They will worship it. Anyway, God knew that this would have spelled disaster for the Israelite community. So according to this tradition, God sends Michael the archangel to hide and bury the body of Moses so that no one could find it. And Satan comes against Michael, probably bringing false accusations. Now we see a similar case in Zechariah chapter 3, which seems to be modeled after this event, where Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest, not Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land after Moses, Joshua who led the Jews out of Babylon to Jerusalem with Ezra, okay? And Zechariah writes this of this vision that he has. When he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with Filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, 
and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What is the connection between these two events? In the prophet Zechariah's vision, Joshua the high priest, who led the first group of Jews back to, uh, out of Babylonian captivity, was standing in heaven before the angel of the Lord. And the devil is there also at the right hand of Joshua. And he's accusing Joshua and the nation of Israel whom Joshua was representative of. And Satan's argument, based on Israel's sinfulness, was that God should break his covenant promises. His promises to make a great nation out of Abraham. His promise that he will establish forever a throne for generations. His promise of a redeemer. And in response, the angel of the Lord, who we believe is the pre-incarnate Christ, because he's referred to as Lord in this passage... He's defending Israel by deferring to God the Father and asking him to rebuke Satan. And the Father honors the pre-incarnate Son. Instead of breaking his covenant with his chosen people, God reaffirmed his commitment to Israel's future justification, promising to forgive Israel's sin and clothe her with garments of righteousness. When Michael contended over the body of Moses, he did just what the angel of the Lord did from Zechariah. His appeal to the Lord as sovereign apparently ends this dispute with Satan. In both cases, God remains the sovereign judge over the, of the angelic beings. In both cases, God is the covenant keeper in Zechariah, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, does not act as a judge, but says, the Lord rebuke you. He's acting as an intercessor for Joshua. He's acting as an advocate for Joshua. Satan comes and accuses and attacks, but the angel of the Lord appeals to the sovereignty of God and sends Satan slithering away. Try saying that five times fast. Now, in Jude, the archangel Michael does not act as a judge, but says, the Lord rebuke you in the same way. He's filling his role, just as the angel of the Lord did. He is not pronouncing judgment on Satan. That's not his position to do that. That's not our job to do that either. Do you know what our job is as believers? Paul tells us in Ephesians, we need to know that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2, meaning that our assurance of salvation is real. But we do not just sit on our hands with this knowledge of our salvation. We then walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, Ephesians 4 and 5. And finally, we are to stand firm, putting on the armor of God, aware of the spiritual battle that is taking place, Ephesians 6. So we are sitting, we are walking, and we are standing. But we cannot stand and, or, or, or contend or even walk the walk unless we understand the reality of our salvation. Unless we recognize our new position as sons and daughters, our, our unity with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Otherwise, it's all based on what we can produce. 
constantly trying to earn our place of sitting in the heavenly places, constantly trying to earn our place of finding rest in Christ. It's just good works, and good works apart from Christ will not be good. The work has already been done. Now we operate faith. Sorry, now we operate with that knowledge and we walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. And we contend for the faith in that spiritual battle with the knowledge that we are already in that rest of Christ. Now Jude has already addressed uh, to the readers of this letter at the very beginning. He addressed them as those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. There's there's a security there. There, There's an assurance there. It's not a position of doubt and, and wavering and great concern. And that's who we are. That's who we are. This is the same issue that has existed since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are God's creation, created to love and, and, and worship him. But Satan says, you can be more. You can know more. You can see more. You can do more. And they chose that option. They did not stay in their lane, so to speak. They were, they were not content to rest in God. Moses, the very reason that his body is not in the promised land is because he hits the rock in the wilderness because he began to think that, that, that the power that he had been exhibiting was his. He says to complaining, the complaining Israelites, must we bring water from this rock? And then he hits the rock rather than speaking to it as God had called him, commanded him to do. Moses forgets his position. He strayed. Now the archangel Michael knows who he is. And he stays in bounds. He does not speak judgment even on the fallen angels. Jude says, verse 10, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Do you see these heretics that, that, that have wormed their way into churches, they don't know who they are positionally. They do not understand the being seated in the heavenly places because they are not. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They, they hear that there is a legitimate spiritual battle that is taking place. And they either are saying that there are no demons or Satan and they open themselves and others to attack. Or they say that they themselves are personally judging and fighting against these fallen angels. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but we do know that it rejected the authority of God. And just like Adam and Eve and just like Moses, they ascribed or desired more power for themselves than they ought. So what does this say to you and I, this strange passage? I think the message of these verses is that many will go astray. 
Many will chase after power or, or liberty outside of God's design. But you, but you be ruled by Christ. But you be ruled by Christ. These heretics that have infiltrated the church are ruled by their natural instincts. What, what does that mean? It means that they are ruled by their flesh, that they chase after what feels good, whatever satisfies temporarily, like an animal would. I remember I was working, on, uh, I was working with a young guy from Liberia on the campaign trail, and we were in the car for a really long period of time driving up to North Georgia, I think, and, and we were discussing things of faith and, and, and a number of different issues and he had told me that he was a believer. Uh, and then we were talking about what it, we were talking about having lots of political power and how it could so quickly go to your head. Don't need to illustrate that. And he brought up the fact that he would struggle being faithful to his wife if women were constantly attracting him. Now, I thought he was just being honest and, and, and humble and recognizing his flesh struggle. But then he said, it is hard for men because we are hunters. It is our animal instinct to do these things. And we cannot help but do these things. As if we are given a green light to do them because that is who we are. And I had to ask him what he thought of having our hearts ruled by Christ uh, and that we are no longer slaves to sin. That we reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ, Romans 6. I wasn't saying we can be sinless. I was saying we don't resign ourselves over to sin. We don't just hand in everything over to sin. And it was like the, this was the first time he had heard any concept of this. But there are people who are like unreasoning animals. They chase after what they do not know. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do not think that your position in Christ is weak. Though to the outside world it may look that way, it is actually the place of greatest security. It is the place of greatest peace. It is the place of great perspective and understanding and trust. And so let us be people who have supreme confidence in who we are, in our position in Christ. May we not be swayed by the desire for power or authority over the spiritual forces or the earthly ones, for that matter. May we be content with the calling we have received. May we be overjoyed with the calling we have received. Understanding that we are great inheritors of this redemption. That even the angels look on from afar with joy at our salvation. That we would not be driven by instinct, but that we would be ruled by Christ. That we would be ruled by Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Father, just two verses and a wealth of beautiful insight pours out that we recognize that people are led by their own instincts and their own instincts will constantly fail them. Their instincts will not lead them to you. You open our spiritual eyes to see the truth. And you have called us to this. You have opened our eyes that we may see. We, the foolish, the, the, those that are not weak, those that are not strong, those that are, that are not uh, powerful, those that are not of noble birth. And yet you've opened our eyes so that we can proclaim to those that think they are strong and those that think uh, that they have nobility or that they have power. And also to those that know that they don't have those things. You have given us this great salvation. You have given us this understanding of who we are. That we sit even now in the heavenlies assured of our salvation. That nothing can shake us from that. So Father, remind us of these things. Remind us of these things as we walk this out in newness of life. That we... Walk this out, living a life that is glorious to you. And that as we stand and contend against those spiritual forces, that we would stand knowing that we are safe with you, that we are secure with you for what you have done for us in the sending of Christ to pay the penalty of death that we deserve, that we will reign and rule with you forever. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.
Jesus, you 